Alright, good. It's going to be a little bit different type of, type of sermon today. Um, it's, there's going to be probably a lot more, more quotes than, than normal just because of the subject and because of the fact that we're dealing with a, a more present and pressing issue. Um, and, and so therefore we have to look at what the culture says about it and then how do we deal with it as Bible-believing Christians. Um, all of us in here as, as Protestants, we confess that we believe in Scripture alone as our final and sole authority. That what the Word says, what, what God has spoken, is the authority by which we live, move, and have our being. That is the authority by which we as Christians must stand by, we must, we must preach. That, that is the authority we live by. I forgot to change the slide. We're not in First John this morning. Um, but with that being said, it was, I think, two weeks ago, and, and Pastor Owen mentioned it, I think, the, the day after. I think it was two weeks ago that, that he went up to Missouri. Um, I wasn't able to make it, but he went up to Missouri for a bill. It was an abolition bill called SB 356, that is Senate Bill 356. What this bill would have done, had it been passed, is it would have abolished the legal abortion in Missouri. It would have made abortion completely illegal in Missouri. There would have been no case whatsoever in which it was legal for a woman or a father or a doctor to murder a defenseless child. None at all. That bill, and I remember the surprise in Coach Owen's voice, Pastor Owen's voice, I remember the surprise in Pastor Owen's voice when, when, he, when he called me up and he said that the bill got shut down. And the only adversaries, the only people who spoke against this bill, the only people who did not want the bill to be passed that would make abortion illegal were pro-lifers. Were pro-lifers. It was Missouri Right to Life that stood against the abolition bill in Missouri. Why? Why, why are the, the, the pro-lifers standing against this bill that, that would abolish abortion, that would say, no, you're not allowed to murder in any circumstance? So that's what we're going to dig into today, and that's why there's going to be a lot of quotes from modern pro-lifers. There's going to be quotes from um, just ancient commentators as well as, as we dig through this issue. With that being said, if anyone's interested and, and has questions, definitely ask. Ask Pastor Owen. Ask me. We'd love to talk about it because this is such an an almost weird topic in the way the church has dealt with it recently. Which means that there's confusion around the issue. Which means the questions must be asked and the answers must be given biblically on the authority of scripture. I made a little pamphlet thing that has basically all the resources I'm going to mention with links on it. So you can go back and you can see where these people have said this, why they said it, um, it has statistics on it regarding stuff. You can ask me for that. Um, I have it printed. I also have just a paper copy, but it's hard to click on links on a paper copy. So you might just want the, the um, digital one. But with that being said, let's open our Bibles up to Exodus 21, um, chapter, or chapter 21, verse 22, and, and take a look at what God's word says about children, about babies in the womb, and about how we ought to 
treat this issue. As you turn there, I, I do want to read a quote that, that expresses why the pro-life movement has, by and large, stood against the abolition of abortion, um, why modern pro-life organizations, most pro-life organizations you hear of, stand against um, abortion being made illegal in all circumstances. Um, there, there's so many quotes. There's so many quotes from, from so many people that run so many organizations. National Right to Life President Carol Tobias, Tobias, how do you pronounce that, said this, the National Right to Life Committee unequivocally opposes the killing of innocent unborn children and works unceasingly to have them protected in law. Unborn children and their mothers are victims in abortion. Unborn children and their mothers are victims in abortion. In adopting statutes prohibiting the performance of abortions, national right to life has long opposed the imposition of penalties on the women on whom an abortion is attempted or performed. Do you see the wording of that? The wording is not, this woman, this woman, knowingly, went into the clinic to have her child murdered. The wording is, she was a victim. She was a victim that was coerced or in some way manipulated into having this child that was in her murdered. And upon that basis, the, the modern pro-life movement has stood against abolition bills because an abolition bill will say abortion is murder in all circumstances. And anyone of all involved in the murder of any human whatsoever, right, what the abolition bill would do is it would say that an unborn human is just like every other human. They're made in the image of God. They have inherent worth. They have inherent value because they're made in the image of God. And therefore, anybody who murders anybody is liable to the punishment of a murder. That would mean that a woman who knowingly goes in to have an abortion and murders her child will be liable for murder. Um, another, another big um, pro-life advocate, Abby Johnson, founder of And Then There Were None Ministries, um, she said this, she said, we believe that abortion is the ultimate violence against women and their unborn children. If abortion were to become illegal, I would not support punishment for women who abort. Most women seeking abortions state that they felt forced or coerced into their decision. I would not support a system that punishes those who are already victimized. If that were true, we'd have to deal with that issue. The problem, statistically, that's not true. Most women who go in to get abortion, based on surveys and studies, do it because they just don't want another kid right now. They're not forced or coerced. They willingly use abortion as birth control. They willingly use this, knowing what is happening. When we, when we stand outside the clinics and we proclaim Christ crucified to these women and men and doctors, we have pictures surrounding where they go in, showing what a child at six weeks in the womb looks like, showing that it's not a clump of cells, that it's a, it's a living being made in the image of God. And they have to see that before they go in the clinic. And, and that's normal. There's, there's, there's protesters, 
There's, there's people outside of most clinics saying, don't go in there. You have a child inside of you. There's a precious living being made in the image of God, and it must be protected. They know what they're doing. The studies show that, and our law shows that. So with that being said, what does God, what does God say about the unborn child, and what then should we do about it, is my goal this morning. My goal is to just kind of shed light, the light of God's word upon this kind of dark area that's so misunderstood. And if we're willing, I think, as congregants, if we're willing as disciples of Christ to submit ourselves into the word of God, I believe the issue becomes very clear. The issue on this becomes very clear on what we are to do. So, Exodus 21, verse 22. Let's read, then we'll pray, and we'll jump into this. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her child come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that although the world would, would seek to confuse us with all their wisdom, with all, with all the, the great understanding of the wise and philosophers, we know, Lord, that, that us as, as the, the dumbest of men can come before your holy word. That we can, can just submit ourselves to what your word says. That we can see in your word a truth that transcends all the lies of this world. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your word that can be understood by the dumbest of men, provided you give us your Holy Spirit. So, Father, this morning, would you fill us with your spirit to understand your word? Would you give us a spirit of knowledge, of understanding, that we would not only understand your justice and righteousness and, and the way in which you say an issue like this would be treated, but may we see through the justice, through the righteousness of your word, the glory of the cross, where Christ was struck for murderers, where Christ was struck for sinners like us. May we, by this morning, holding, beholding your glory, by beholding your righteousness, may we see just how serious the cross is, just how serious our sin is, and just how great and awesome our salvation is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. First point. First point I want to draw from this passage. God regards the baby's life as sacred. Just just look at, at the wording here in this passage. So that her children come out. Her clump of cells? No. Her children. So that her children were to come out. Meaning before they came out. That was her child in the womb. Again, life for what? For life. Not, not life for just this, this, you know, some type of, I don't know, organ. No, life for life. There's a life in the womb, and if that womb, if that life is to be hurt, God says life for life. Because he sees the child. 
made in his image, the one he knit together in the depths of that womb, the one he so carefully and preciously made as a life, deserving of equality with other life. This is, this is the foundation, the foundation upon which a bill like SB 356 rested. The bill rested on the fact that that baby in the womb is made in the image of God. Here's a, here's a quote from that bill that, that got shut down in Missouri. It says, Acknowledging the sanctity of innocent human life, created in the image of God, it is the intent of the General Assembly to follow Article 1, Section 2 of the Missouri Constitution, which provides that all constitutional government is intended to promote the general welfare of the people, that all persons have a right, natural right, to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and the enjoyment of the gains of their own industry, that all persons are created equal and are entitled to equal rights and opportunity under the law, that to give security to these things is the principal office of government, and that when government does not confer this security, it fails in its chief design. What's the foundation? Foundation? The child is made in the image of God. The baby in the womb is equal to us in every respect. It has inerrant worth because God has given it inerrant worth, and therefore it ought to be treated. He or she ought to be treated just like the rest of us and given the protection that we get from our government. Calvin commenting on this passage he says, this passage at first sight is ambiguous. For if the word death only applies to the pregnant woman, it would not have been a capital crime to put an end to the fetus, which would be a great absurdity. For if the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being, and it is almost a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. On these grounds, I am led to conclude without hesitations that the words, if death should follow, must be applied to the fetus as well as to the mother. What does the passage say? The passage says that God gives an errant dignity and worth to this child. And that in this situation, perhaps on accident, two men are striving together. And, and the woman gets involved somehow. She gets in the middle of it. She gets struck. She gets hurt. The penalty falls on the man who struck her. The penalty falls on the one who hurt her. And not only that, but if the fetus gets hurt, if the child is pained, and the penalty falls on the one who struck her because the life inside of her was hurt. Our laws right now reflect this. Double homicide laws, they reflect the fact that we as a nation believe in this truth. That, that in, inside of the pregnant woman is, is a separate life that has dignity and value and worth. And therefore, if a murderer murders a woman that's pregnant, and the life inside of her dies, he's charged with double homicide. 
So, so our laws as a nation reflect the fact that we believe that that child is a child, a life. In, in fact, because of the inconsistency in which our law deals with this issue, there are laws in states where it will define murder as the, the killing of, of a life, and then it will give an exception. And the exception is basically if, if the life is inside of, of a mother and, and she's, she's willing to do it, it's not murder. That's how our law is written. That's how inconsistent we are as a nation in dealing with this issue. And the problem with many pro-life laws is that they want to, on the basis even of Scripture, and they try to argue it's from Scripture, deal with this issue in the same manner. They want to come at this issue and say, well, yes, it's a child, and yes, it's worthy of, of, of the value, and, and we ought to protect them, but if someone kills them, we shouldn't actually treat them as if they're a person and, and punish the person who killed them as such. Well, how's that work? Problem is, it doesn't. It, it literally doesn't. Roe v. Wade, when it was originally passed, was passed upon the knowledge that we were inconsistent in that way, that we didn't punish them like that. And so Roe v. Wade, and then the people came along and said, well, we're not being consistent with it, so let's just say it's allowed. And then it was allowed for 50 years. It still is. We must be consistent in this issue. If we're going to say the baby inside is a life, we have to deal with the issue as if the baby is a living being made in the image of God. And so, this passage, what does God command? What does God command as the penalty if the baby is harmed? Verse 23. But if there is harm then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Obviously, this gets into a bigger topic in Scripture, which is the topic of the death penalty and, and how we are to deal with that. Um, I'd like to note a couple things in dealing with this. If you turn back with me to Genesis 9... Verses 5 and 6. Um, and, and while you're turning there, just I do want to note that while I'm not going to deal extensively with all the scripture on, on the death penalty and, and, and government and how they are to enforce that today, I did put a lot of resources in, in my notes that I have on this. So if anyone wants to see more about that, definitely ask me. I'd love to give you resources. Our confession talks about it in the 1689, um, and it, it talks about it clearly. Um, and there's many other great resources on that topic. So Genesis 9, 5 and 6, we, we begin to see why this is such an important issue. And for your life blood, this is, by the way, God is making a covenant with Noah. All right, this is an eternal covenant. Um, Right, the same covenant that said God's not going to flood the earth again is, is contained here. So, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, 
By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. What is the penalty rooted in? What is the reasoning on why God ordained this? The penalty is rooted in the fact that that God made mankind in his image, in his likeness. He gave them worth, a worth he did not give to animals, a worth that sets us apart, and therefore, in this passage, not only are our, our man is, is man to be to be given the death penalty were they to kill a man, but a beast was too. If if a beast, and, and you read about that in Exodus as well, if if, if if a beast were to gore a man, what happens? You kill the beast. Because God requires the lifeblood of the one who kills. Why? What, 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 is, what is the point of, of, of this? In fact, I, there's, there's a quote I have here. Um, I actually don't know if I... Yeah, I do have it. Gene Mancini, president of the March for Life Education and Defense Fund, again, another huge pro-life organization, said this, Women who choose abortion often do so in desperation and then deeply regret such a decision. Hmm. No pro-lifer would ever want to punish a woman who has chosen abortion. This is against the very nature of what we are about. We invite a woman who has gone down this route to consider paths to healing, not punishment. So what did she say? She said said that to, to punish someone for killing, for murder is against the very nature of pro-life, the pro-life movement. But what does God say? What does God say? God says it's loving. God says it's good. God says he put government in place to protect the innocent and defenseless. Proverbs 21.15, it says, When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror, terror to evildoers. Puritan John Howe said, In all equal government, it is the design of penal laws that the terror might reach to all, the punishment itself, but to a few. What's the goal in enacting a law like this? What's, a, what's the goal in enacting a law that would say, that these, these babies are, are equal to, as humans, that they deserve the rights that all other humans do. The goal is to never have to dish out that penalty ever. The goal is to not once ever have to give people that penalty. The goal is that justice would be shown and it would put terror on evildoers and they would not ever be willing to touch the innocent life of a child because they know that the punishment is fierce from the hand of the government. That's the goal. Thomas Watson said, the magistrate's justice, it is the oppressed man's shield. The magistrate's justice is the oppressed man's shield. Where does the innocent child have to hide? It's it's in the safest place it could be, in its mother's womb. And, and, And we as a people have decided as a nation that it's okay it is fine to tear it out of such a place. Remember Calvin's comment? If it, be, if it be more, if it be worse to kill a man in his own house than in a field, how much worse a fetus in his mother's womb? 
where does the fetus have to hide? That's the role of the government. That's the job of the government that God has put in place to be the, the shield for the oppressed, the shield for the defenseless. Turn with me real quick to Romans 13, 3 through 4. Are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. What's the goal? The goal is that the government, in not bearing the sword in vain, in being called to action by law, would enact equal measures, would enact justice, would act justly and righteously toward these babies. That our law would reflect that. And that when those evildoers, those wicked men, who think it's okay to do such things, see the penalty of the law, they would rethink. They would see the just punishment that glooms over their head if they were to commit such a monstrous crime against a child. And they would stop. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. That means the point of the government, the point of God's instituted law, is that rulers would be a terror to bad conduct. Yes, the goal is to put anyone who would think to do such a thing in fear of what will happen if they do. The goal is that through law, as instituted by God, in acting justly, we would make clear the repercussions of such a thing in order that no one would consider doing it. That's the duty of God's instituted magistrates. And our duty as Christians, then, is to be that pillar and buttress of the truth, to stand firm on the law of God, to stand firm on, on what God's word says about this issue in order that we may, by the grace of God, abolish abortion and stop the killing of innocent children. One more point. So, 
Obviously, Exodus 21, God values the innocent life. There are numerous other passages we could point to. I have them listed out in this pamphlet if you want it. That passage is clear. God values the innocent life. He demands justice for life. My third point, what does that mean for us? Not, not what does it mean for the government, but what does it mean for us as individuals? Are, are we the ones bearing the sword? Are we the ones that are told ever to enact this punishment? Are, are we the ones that, that, that are supposed to deal with this? When I was reading Exodus 21, and, and you read that passage, and it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, probably most of your minds went to another passage said by Christ. And we'll turn there. Let's just turn there right now. Matthew 5. And we'll end here. I know we're going through a lot of passages today. But Matthew 5, 38 and 39. It says retaliation above it. I think this passage really puts into perspective what our duty is as individual Christians regarding this issue. Jesus, speaking to the Jews, says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And by the way, that account we just read in Exodus 21 was the first account that that appears in Scripture. Which is the law law of retaliation, is, is what it's called. So you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Christ quotes that law. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Is Jesus contradicting Exodus 21? No. What Jesus is doing is telling us how we ought to behave in the kingdom of God as stewards of his grace, as those who have received the grace of God and act as individuals, not in a physical Israel, not in a place where we have the the authority from God to enact the death penalty. We as individuals do not. So what do you do? How do we act? If, if If someone slaps you on the right cheek, what do you do? You turned in the other also. It's not your duty as an individual Christian to enact vengeance, to enact justice in the governmental sphere. That's the government's job. God has put them in place. Romans 13 makes that clear. Our job is to submit to them. Our job is to be in subjection to them as they will all stand before God and give an account for that. Are we to call them to action? Of course. Of course. Are we to work with them to enact justice, to proclaim to them what the law of God says? Most definitely. Are we to stone an adulterer? No. No. What do we do? Brothers and sisters, we as Christians have the right as the church to do something, to have have an authority that the government was not given. And that is the authority to proclaim and herald the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world. We, we have the, 
the authority given by Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. And in that sense, then, when we see something like this happen, when we see injustice happening, and when we see that mother go in there with with her husband or boyfriend or whoever it is, and, and we see them come out, and she has that ice pack, and her baby's gone, what is our job? Our job is to proclaim a Christ. Proclaim the magnificent Savior of the world who died in the stead of ruined sinners, who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, the one who knew no sin yet became sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is our duty to a lost and dying world? Our duty is not, as individual Christians, to enact justice. It's to tell of the mercy and grace of Christ. Now, with that being said, we have the law of God. We have his rules. We have the way in which he says we must act. So if we're unwilling to be clear about this issue as Christians, if we're unwilling to talk to these people and say, yes, it's murder. Yes, to take the innocent life of the child is to murder the child. If we won't say that they've broken God's law, we can't tell them of the great grace for those who have broken God's law. And so we as Christians must be clear. We must be concise on this issue. And we must boldly proclaim that abortion is murder, but there is a savior of murderers. There is a God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a life we could never live, died a death for sinners. And as our sin was imputed to him, all of those murderers, all of those liars, all of us thieves, blasphemers, adulterers, as our sin was placed upon Christ on the cross, and he suffered under the wrath of God, as our robe was put upon him, he as though I, accursed and left alone. Guys, we get to proclaim a Christ who saves murderers. We get to proclaim a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We are able as Christians to stand outside a place that engages in the brutal slaughtering and ripping apart of the preborn and proclaim that those people are not beyond the grace of God. That the grace of God is so far-reaching that he can take their sins just like he did ours and cast them as far as the east is from the west. That he can remove our iniquities from us. That Christ took the wrath of the Father on our behalf and for all those who would ever believe in him. And that they, though they may feel so helpless, though they seem they have nothing, perhaps they are there murdering their child because they don't know what else to do. Guess what? Guess what? There's a Savior who can sympathize with our weaknesses. There's a Christ who has become in every respect like we have yet without sin. We have a great high priest over the household of God. A high priest in the heavens who sits at the right hand of the Father and mediates for us. And if 
the most wretched, terrible abortion doctor who has, who has murdered countless children has seen the remains were to go to the throne of grace and were to plead with Christ that that atonement be given to him, that his robes be put upon Christ and that he be able to be hidden in Christ in God and take that robe of Christ and put it upon himself. He would be seen holy and blameless on that great day of judgment. He would be seen as a precious child of God because we serve a great and mighty Savior who saves to the uttermost those who draw near to him. So what do we do as Christians? We proclaim that Christ is risen, that he's king and Lord, that he is returning to judge, that he will judge murderers, he will judge abortion doctors, he will judge those who have them, he'll judge liars, he'll judge thieves, he'll judge blasphemers, and all liars, thieves, blasphemers, adulterers, murderers, cowards, all have their part in the lake of fire. But that great king and Lord has suffered and died in our stead. And we have peace with God through him. My dad's going to come up and and bless the elements of communion. And today as we take communion, we get to partake of that bread and juice knowing that wicked and wretched sinners like us, the chief of sinners, are made righteous by that blood, are made righteous by that King and Savior. And we get to know that when we partake of that great feast on that final day, we'll partake with joy in the glory of our Savior right beside murderers. We'll partake with joy, made righteous by the blood of the Lamb, right beside the most wicked sinners. Because God is a great Savior. Let's pray. Then I guess you'll come up and pray again. You want me to pray or you want to pray? You want to pray? Ah. I did prepare something to talk about, but I think he's, he's said quite a bit. I think uh, uh, the whole reality is that we're sinners. We've been saved by a God. We all have sins. All of our sins are um, in, in the view of each other, where we shouldn't be looking all the time. Um, in judgment, um, one sin stronger than another. As Cody said, God has... His grace is big enough to save us all, to save any, um, from the, the worst of the worst to the uh, least of the least. And uh, in that, we're unified. We're unified in Christ. We're unified in being saved by a Savior that was able to do that. Uh, and, and he calls us to, uh, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he calls us to remember that, to remember his sacrifice, to remember what he did for us, not to 
remember what each other uh, done or what each other did worse than the other, to remember our sins and that we were saved um, and that we are unified with each other in that salvation. We are unified in that we all were sinners and he saved us all and we get to be with him one day in heaven. So let's pray and we'll, uh, we'll take communion. Father, thank you for the message this morning. Thank you that uh, you, you teach us, Father. Your word teaches us all things and uh, while the world can really distract us and show us a lot of different uh, avenues that our minds can be drawn down but when we return to you, when we return to your gospel, your son, your word, we see the truth, Father, and you show it to us. And we know that in that we can find what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to act. Thank you for the message this morning. Thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose again. Father, thank you for his, his gift that he shed his blood, Father, and he gave his flesh and for us so that we can be here today and that we can take this time to remember this, to remember his gift and our salvation. Father, be with us as we commune together in your Son. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.